You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, how do you evaluate restaurants? Like, how do you determine what your favorite restaurant to eat at is? I feel like it depends on a number of different factors. Food, like imagination of food. I guess ambiance is important, right? Mm -hmm. I think ambiance is important. Trying to think. What else? I want a nice drink that kind of complements what I'm eating. So, because I want there to be forethought into the food that I'm eating so much so that they've thought about what drink I should get. Right. Yeah, I'm in that like snobby food drink phase of my life where I like where they like actually suggest a pairing of like a beer that go with the meal. Yes. Yeah, I'm really, but I feel really snooty like whenever I'm actually doing that. I'm like, oh, this is pairs well. I've started to I like embrace my former, it. I feel like my former self would have been disappointed in my current self. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's tough though, right? It's tough to, it's tough to evaluate like, what a great restaurant is because there's so many different types of restaurants that I like and they're all different. There are some dive restaurants that I just love and it's totally different than like this restaurant in Portland, Maine that my wife and I just went to. It's like, it's, it's weird to think about like a metric that would capture all of that. And I don't know how you would capture greatness in restaurants. I think we could sit here and talk about it all day because everyone loves food. But, you know, it's not that important, like a single meal, like you'll be okay if the meal doesn't go perfectly. But there's a lot of other things in life we have to evaluate that maybe are more important and even more difficult to determine. For example, school quality. That's where you were going. Okay, I was trying yeah. to pick up this, uh, this analogy you're piecing together. <laughs> I imagine so we... then we're talking about schools, quality of schools and how to measure yeah. it. Am I, did I read that correctly? That, that's where I'm going. And I think I think a lot of parents, you know, in particular, and even just citizens are often trying to figure out how do I determine the quality of this school for my child or for the kids in our community? And I think sometimes we rely on really terrible metrics, right? Um, like Yelp reviews. But I, it's, it's difficult. Like I felt like I taught at a great school and but I don't know how I would objectively justify that or measure that to, to tell other people this is a great school you should send your kids here what are some aspects of your school that you would promote your greatness measure maybe i focused on the teacher side too much but for me we had a great climate like there's a really positive climate of teachers that worked really hard at their at their craft we just really cared about the students i think people took the academics very seriously but also there was like a nice balance i feel like it was serious but we cared about the kids and their overall well-being like i think we, we balanced that and so we had, but we offered a nice array of classes. If students wanted to take AP classes, they could take AP classes and get some college credit down. So I don't know. I, I guess like my terrible uh, way of evaluating schools, I liked walking into it every morning. I liked being there. Is that, is there a metric for that? I don't know. I would hope so. I feel like wanting to be there and walking in and being like, yeah, this is where I belong. I feel like that's actually a pretty decent thing to kind of like, it's hard to measure. But yeah. I feel like it's a good indicator. So 
maybe a lot of people already are doing this with different metrics. And so maybe we should bring in somebody who can talk to us a little bit more about the ways that schools are evaluated and maybe the ways they should be evaluated for their overall quality. And so we would like to welcome into the program Jack Snyder. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about your background in education? Sure. I, I went to school for a long time. Nice. I went you know, all, <laughs> all the way through, I think, about 23rd grade is, is about what a doctoral equivalent is. And, and prior to, to finishing out, prior to that, I was a, a high school history teacher. I taught in the Philadelphia area, and then uh, once I once I completed the schooling sequence, and they threw me out after twenty third grade, then I taught for a couple of years at Carleton College in Minnesota, and I'm now in my fifth year teaching at Holy Cross in Massachusetts. I'm in Massachusetts right now. <laughs> well, well, if we had planned ahead of time, we wouldn't be uh, skyping in together. I would be curled up on your couch with you there. See, it would be fun. <laughs> We'd be doing the interview in person. We are going to fit in well here because we both are history teachers. I taught history. Michael still does teach history. So we always appreciate people who can give a historical context to, you know, what's happening in schools. And the history around schools is really fascinating. So what did you learn from your own school experiences that have kind of informed, you know, your understanding of school quality? Well, you know, a lot of the stuff that you guys were talking about a few minutes ago about what makes a successful school, right? Thinking back to my own schooling experience, you know, I often didn't understand it as as a child and even as an adolescent, I didn't understand entirely what it was that made a school work or not. But reflecting back on it, you know, I, I went to uh, an elementary school where I had the opportunity to play and explore, to be creative, the arts were a very big part of what I got to do on a daily basis. I remember working with a kiln at beginning at about age seven or eight, bringing home a variety of glazed dinosaurs. Over the course of a couple of years, I felt like you know the school environment had been shaped by people who cared about me, and that it was a very consciously crafted environment. That was something that you know I think I knew even as a six, seven, eight-year-old, uh, but certainly can reflect back on now. When I was a teacher. You know, one of the things that I really loved about my school was that there was a culture of collaboration. We had a very trusting uh, relationship between administrators and teachers, uh, which fostered a culture of adventurous teaching, experimentation. I felt like that was really important. Um, you know, there were lots of other good things going on at that school, but that's something that I you know, felt was a particular strength there. And then now, in a very different role, as somebody who does a lot of research in schools, you know, some of the things that are standing out to me these days when I walk into a school, the sound of the school, is it like eerily quiet, you know, indicating to me that there's something up with the culture there that is keeping kids from being kids? Or is it like totally out of control? Or does it have that that just right Goldilocks school sound where there's laughter and there's occasional, you know, shouting from somebody being really excited about a right answer or, you know, whispering in certain areas between, you know, teachers and students who are working together on a problem that is, you know, being driven by student interest, student hanging around after class. So, you know, the sounds are something I'm really into these days. I'm walking through a school. And then also just the things I see in a playground. I live across the street from my daughter's school. So when I go and run errands, I often walk by. And I see, you know, who's who's sitting alone on the playground and then suddenly has uh, another kid in his or her grade walk by and sit down next to him. 
you know, who's who's picking up a piece of trash as as he or she walks across the basketball court. So lots of different things to be tuned into when, you know, when you're thinking about what makes a great school. And certainly none of that, nothing that I've mentioned gets measured by a standardized test. Uh, so, you know, that's that's become a real concern of mine. I know that, you know, there are feelings you get, but how can you put that into like what makes a, a great school? Like what is the work that you're doing to do some research around this subject? Yeah, it's a really good question. So, you know, I think I would take it just one step back from there and say, you know, rather than grab an arbitrary handful of measures that might stand out to me because of my own schooling experiences or teaching experiences or my experiences as a parent of a public school student, you know, I think our first uh, move here, and I think it, it was uh, our, our one key innovation is that we actually went and asked stakeholders, uh, what do you value? What matters? What are the things about schools that are most critically important? And uh, so not only did we look at national polling and do an over overview of educational research, but my team also conducted uh, stakeholder focus groups with parents, community members, students, teachers, principals, district administrators, uh, and I co-founded a consortium of districts here in Massachusetts, the Massachusetts Consortium for Innovative Education Assessment. Uh, we've got six member districts, Attleboro, Boston, Lowell, Revere, Somerville, and Winchester in alphabetical order. And we have conducted focus groups with almost 300 folks from those districts at this point. We've built a school quality framework that includes variables that everybody thinks are important. And so I think that that's a really key first step. And only then, after you've figured out what matters, to then figure out how to measure those things. So to finally get around to answering your question, uh, you know, if you want to measure something like, uh, let's say, school culture, uh, which, which we've organized into a few different discrete concepts. So, you know, school culture for us is about the student-student relationships, the student-teacher relationships, and then about the academic orientation of the school, because, of course, you know, you could have a place where everybody's got, you know, great positive relationships, everybody's happy and feels supported, but, you know, all you're doing is making lanyards all day. Uh, and so it was a key part of school culture that it is oriented towards cognitive uh, and academic growth. And so then once you have begun to define the construct a bit, you could say, well, okay, well, you know, how are we going to figure out how the student-student relationships here are? Well, who's the best person to weigh in on that? Probably students. And so we do use a lot of surveys uh, in our work. Um, you know, for student-teacher relationships, we ask students and we ask teachers. For other measures, let's say for uh, teachers in the teaching environment, which is one of our major categories, when looking at how supported teachers are, for instance, you know, of course you can ask them, but then you can also look at, uh, you know, quote-unquote objective data. Uh, you know, you can look at a teacher turnover rate at a school. Uh, you can look at how much the district is investing in professional development. Um, you can ask teachers about their professional development experiences. Um, so we'll, this in the field is called data triangulation, right? Where you're trying to come up with a number of different measures where you aren't relying on a single measure to get the story. And hopefully by coming up with a few different measures that are giving you uh, a viewpoint on this construct, you can really get a fully fleshed out picture that ends up being, you know, not only more three dimensional, but also more accurate as a result. And so, um, so we've been querying districts for a lot of new data that they haven't previously collected. 
And then also uh, we've got a student perception survey and a teacher uh, perception survey that we use. And so with these tools, we're trying to put together a picture of school quality that will give parents, teachers, you know, district administrators, school committee members, local community members, the information that they really want to have about their schools that they currently don't because they're either relying on anecdotal evidence, you know, or what they can just see with their eyes, which of course is very valuable, but, but hard to then share with other people and hard to, to share about a whole school or a whole district, or they're relying on standardized test scores. So you've, you've created this innovative way of looking at districts and you're doing, you have a holistic method for doing so. Can you tell us about the ways that a lot of districts are measuring it? I know like in some states they have these A to F measures that are really simple to evaluate schools. Seeing the criticism often seems to be that really they're just, you know, giving back the income level of the schools often is all that that's coming out of that data. Um, so what, what are a lot of districts doing that's wrong right now? What are the problems you've seen? Sure. Yeah. Most of it is driven by the states. And then most of that is in response to federal legislation, you know, specifically No Child Left Behind, but the update to NCLB, which is ESSA, the Every Student Succeeds Act, has not changed the mandate that all states have their public schools test students in math and English language arts at grades three through eight, as well as once in high school. Um, and then there's grade span testing in science as well. But you know, what this means, this mandate has meant that the only, the only mandated data is student test score data. Now that's changing a bit. They're including measures of student attendance, graduation rates, but generally speaking, they've gone after really easy to get data. Now, of course, when I say easy to get, you know, that's, that's just because they built the infrastructure for testing. But of course, when you think about how much time and energy goes in to the testing industry, test scores certainly are not easy to get. And so when people push back, for instance, against our move as a consortium to begin to try to measure student learning by looking at what students can actually do, so performance assessment, and this is performance assessment on tasks that have been created by teachers. Because of course, who knows better the stuff that students are doing on a daily basis than teachers. We've gotten pushback that, you know, well, looking at all these performance assessments is going to take a tremendous amount of time and it's going to take a, a tremendous amount of capacity building to get districts to the point where we can look at these tasks and rate them in a reliable way. And of course, you know, a, a tremendous amount of time goes in the testing kids on multiple choice tests, which don't actually align with the things that they're learning in class or that we want them in learning in class or that align with long-term outcomes that we value. So test scores do rule right now. And as a result of that, and as a result of the fact that testing is so narrow, and as a result of the fact that measurement is, is so bounded in the tests, test score category, We've seen a lot of unintended consequences, narrowing of the curriculum, teaching of the tasks. You know, you talk to teachers and they don't like it, but they also don't want their schools to be sanctioned or shut down. And so, you know, one of the things that we talk about when we talk about measuring school quality more holistically is not just measuring all the things that matter, but also taking a 360 view of schools so that you're not perversely incentivizing schools 
to stop doing so many of the things that we really want schools to be doing. Like, for instance, teaching history uh, is an obvious one, um, but also, yes. you know, creating caring relationships among uh, young people and adults. We want to incentivize schools to do that as well. Um, these things that educators got into classrooms to do in the first place. And so measurement systems should align with what we value not just because it's right, but also because there are real policy consequences to all this. And when you think of the narrowing of the curriculum, history is a great example, right? Because social studies is often left out of the testing sphere, but social studies educators actually have this like kind of back and forth on, well, it's good we're left out of testing because we have freedom. Oh, but wait, all of a sudden we're getting marginalized in the curriculum because we're not tested. And so you see people teaching to the test, particularly at elementary school where um, you know, we've just teaching math, science and literature. And even though English is a little bit of a um, humanity, I think that social studies is the one that makes sure we have citizens, not, you know, technocrats who graduate from school with skills, but no more, you know, moral civic purposes behind how to evaluate and think about their purposes in the world. So and I think part of this problem is just the the public doesn't understand how we can measure things very well. You know, I think what you, the way that you're talking about it, I think, is pretty different than a lot of people. They just want a number. It's the same thing with ACT, SAT scores. We just want a number. Just give us the number. And that mathematical kind of way of thinking is so out of touch with how you measure complex phenomena, which are like you guys have taken numerous factors. And there's still going to be limitations and imperfections in that. But you guys are at least recognizing it, it seems like. So I think that must be part of the difficulties. Districts want low-hanging fruit easy numbers to get, and then they want to get those back out. Unfortunately, those numbers tend to tell us very little about what schools are actually doing. Yeah, and I think just to, to push back on this notion that the public wants numbers and that the public maybe wants tests, you know, I think what, what we really see is that the public and parents are of two minds about this, right? Because when they think about what the consequences of testing are, when they think about what their kids are spending time doing in classrooms instead of arts education or social studies education, or instead of having time to just play and be kids, um, they tend to express through opinion polling some real, uh, some real skepticism about testing. And then in other polls, you see parents saying, no, 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 standardized testing is important. I want this information. And what I think that actually reveals is that People intuitively know that you cannot measure a school by looking at test scores. And yet the lived experience that we all have, right, because we've been testing people for generations. NCLB may have been signed into law in 2002, but the testing enterprise is a century old. Uh, and this is something that I've written about with a colleague of mine, Ethan Hutt, uh, who teaches at the University of Maryland. Generations have moved through school taking standardized tests whether it be, uh, you know, the Iowa test of basic skills or the Stanford nine, you eventually get into high school and you take, you know, the college entrance exam tests, or you take AP tests, or, you know, you decide you're not on the college track and you take a, a test to get your license as a beautician or, you know, we live in a society that has been acculturated to testing. And so testing is accepted to the point where, you know, people will say, hey, listen, I don't like tests, but you have to take them. And the answer is actually, well, maybe you don't. What? Um, you, you know, if you if you don't like 
tests. And if you don't think tests measure learning very well, you know, then the alternative is to actually try to come up with a new way of measuring it. And if you're talking about academic achievement, maybe the thing that makes more sense is to come up with a set of assignments that actually capture what students know and can do, right? If you want to see if students, you know, have mastered scientific concepts, probably we don't want them filling out, you know, a series of bubbles with number two pencils. Maybe let's give them a lab assignment to complete. If you want to know if students know history, you know, better not to offer them, you know, a four choice, multiple choice question that, you know, often leaves them with a coin flip decision and better to give them a, a series of documents and ask them to cross uh, reference the documents and come up with their own interpretation, which of course is something that historians do. Historians never uh, sit down in an archive uh, and then fill one of them in with the uh, the approved pencil uh, that they've brought in with them. You could also send them back in time and see if they can survive. That could be a performance assessment. <laughs> that, we, we do not have that technology yet, but you know there are other technologies that in, increasingly uh, give us some viable tools for measuring school quality in a way that just makes more sense given what we value in schools. And, you know, surveys are one of them. Uh, and just to give you an example of how technology does play a role in this space, we did something that I think was pretty cool. And we text messaged survey questions to students and teachers. And rather than having them sit down for one long survey at one point in the year, we sent one question a day for each of the 180 school days. And the theory there was, first of all, it would be pretty painless, you know, take five seconds a day to do this instead of half an hour uh, to sit for a long survey. Second of all, uh, it would actually give you daily feedback, right? So if you gave different students different questions each day, collectively, you would get a snapshot of school culture or student well-being uh, or, you know, teacher feelings of uh, administrative support, you know, whatever the construct is, you could get real-time data on this in a way that a standardized test, of course, could never give you, even if it was relevant to the construct. And then finally, you know, you could actually track things over the course of the year so that you could, as educators who are professionals, who have a lot of skills, who should be allowed to use some autonomy to make decisions about their schools and what's best for their schools, to get a little data uh, and to see how their experiments are working. You know, I think for so long, data has been used as a cudgel to, uh, to punish schools and to pry power away from teachers. And uh, part of the mind shift here is in not just re-envisioning how we measure school quality, but in what these measures are for. And a, a part of what excites me about this is that data can actually be used to empower educators to make decisions that fit the context of their school and to track their experiments and to use data to make decisions about what's right in the context of their schools. I think all of that is, is so much more productive than talking about having everybody in the school sit for several hours and, you know, fill in bubbles with a pencil and then, you know, give teachers raises or threaten to fire them according to how their kids have filled in those bubbles. One thing I've talked to educators about is also we should quit being waiting until someone else puts standards upon us to start dealing with this problem or pushing back that this is a poor way to assess our schools. We could produce our own data about our own schools and start to show people what we're doing. And I think that's the same way that we don't need to wait for an administrator to walk into our room to improve our classroom. Let's let's try to get into the classroom of our colleagues, give each other productive feedback, 
you know, and so we can show people, yeah, this is the places where I've been making improvements. These are the things I'm doing successfully. And this is the way that I'm going to become a better teacher. And often in education, I think educators and schools wait too long for other people to tell us what to do. And so maybe that's part of the solution. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I have two responses to that. One is that the consortium that I co-founded is governed by superintendents and teachers union presidents. So we have a co-governance model. And so this is not a top-down state-level mandate. This is teachers and administrators working together uh, to try to innovate uh, and create a model that they they think will work in the context of their schools. But then you're right. uh, You don't need to wait for our consortium to come knocking that Teachers, if they do two things that I think we've done pretty well, can absolutely do this work on their own or in teams of teachers. I think one thing that we've done that's really important is, as I mentioned earlier, we built this framework for school quality so that everybody's on the same page using the same terminology and talking about the same core set of values. And then step two is figuring out how are we going to measure this stuff. And of course, you know, you don't need, you don't need numbers to do it. You could absolutely engage in, you know, what is in Japan uh, called lesson study, where teams of teachers can get together and say, like, here's our goal for the next two months. Um, Let's each come up with a plan to try to get at that goal and then report out to each other. And qualitative evidence matters just as much as quantitative evidence. And hearing a teacher talk through, hey, here's, here's what I did. Here's what I think worked really well. Here's how I think you know, I realized the goal. Here's where I think it fell short. Hearing that from another teacher, that's not going to be portable at the state level. But if what matters in this setting is teachers sharing their knowledge with each other and building their capacity as professionals together, they don't need numbers, right? They can listen to each other's stories there as long as there's a small enough number in the room, three, four, 10 teachers that they can actually listen to each other and be heard, that there are ways to track progress without, you know, uh, having students sit for even a performance assessment or without conducting a school-wide survey. What lessons can educators, parents, and citizens learn from what we know about measuring education quality? You know, I I think the the first lesson to learn is that the teachers who have been pushing back against the dominance of standardized testing need to offer an alternative vision, that it hasn't really worked just to stand in opposition. Accountability isn't going anywhere, nor should it necessarily, right? That public schools, insofar as they belong to the public, and insofar as it's pretty hard to judge what's going on in a school from the outside, ought to be making transparent the work that they're doing. And, you know, from (laughs) from a less idealistic standpoint, Policymakers are not going to let go of the reins of power that they've seized for themselves in terms of testing and accountability over the past couple decades. And teachers who are pushing back and saying, you know, standardized tests have got to go, you know, I think that's gotten them halfway there. There is a building anti-testing movement, but to get the rest of the way, they have to propose an alternative. And I think the alternative is to say, hey, let's measure all the things we care about. Let's stop measuring things that actually do a better job of measuring uh, parental educational attainment and parental poverty, which, you know, we could actually, we could measure that without having students sit for a standardized test. So l- let's stop measuring things that don't really capture school quality. Let's start measuring the things that do better capture school quality. I think that that's a pretty powerful message that uh, the teachers can seize on. 
In terms of parents, I think the, the single most important lesson for parents here is that school quality is not a single concept and that there is no such thing as a good school or a bad school. I talk to a lot of parents who are interested in finding out, uh, you know, where the good schools are and where the bad schools are. You know, the, the biggest problem there is that it starts with a false conception of how schools work, that schools are ecosystems. Uh, schools are not soda or cereal, you know, a sort of a, a consumable good that is pretty unidimensional. Schools are full of uh, living people who act on the space that they are inside, and they're hugely complex in terms of the aims that we want them to realize. So schools are really strong in some areas and less strong in other areas. And so the most important question parents can begin to ask is, what is this school really strong at? And what does this school need to work on? And then second would be not only is school quality not a unidimensional concept, but also it has a lot to do with who your kid is. And so for parents, I think it's really important to start talking about fit, right? So what is the school strong at and what is the school less strong at? And how is that going to work for my particular kid? And so for instance, my kid is the daughter of a high school English teacher and a college professor. My kid could go to a lot of schools and be just fine in terms of her academic readiness, which is not to say we want to let schools off the hook for academic readiness. That's a huge part of what schools do. But it means my focus as a parent is I'm really concerned with things like who are her classmates going to be? Is she going to be in a diverse school where she's going to get learn to get along with all the different kinds of people who are in our community? Is she going to have opportunities to play and be creative? Is she going to be exposed to all the different stuff in the curriculum uh, that is going to shape her interests over the next, uh, she's in first grade, so over the next 12 years that she's in school? And so with parents thinking about what is school quality actually, it's this multidimensional thing that also interacts with your kid and that your kid is multidimensional is a really important first step and that test scores don't get it get at any of that really. And then in terms of, you know, communities and the public, you know, I think the thing that I'm most concerned with is uh, what my colleague Hunter Gelbach, who's at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and I have been calling the perception gap, which is this gap between how people experience their own kids' schools and how the public perceives school quality more broadly. And so this comes across most clearly in the Phi Delta Kappen poll, which every year is released in September. And we see that people rate their own kids' schools, public schools, uh, an A or a B uh, on average. This is most people. But then most people rate the nation's public schools a C or a D on average. Now, both of these things can't be true at the same time, right? Most schools can't be failing and then also somehow really serving uh, the parents of the children enrolled in the schools really well. And I think the problem is that people who send their kids to schools, you know, they don't know everything, but they know a lot about what's going on in the schools. They see the kids who are coming home every day to them and how they're growing and what their interests are, how they're behaving, how they feel about themselves as learners, the kind of relationships they have with teachers and their peers. Um, so they have a pretty good sense of what's going on at that school. And as a result, even if they don't have a holistic set of data, they do have a holistic picture of school quality. And so when they're asked to weigh in on school quality, 
you know, they've got a lot of information. And when we listen to those people, uh, the nation's schools are doing okay. Whereas what is the data that we have about all the schools in general that, you know, we don't have kids in, you know, what do I know about the nation's schools? Well, I hear a lot about test scores. I hear a lot of rhetoric about failing schools. And I think that actually what test scores tell us is that we live in a nation where there's a lot of poverty. And that's certainly something that we should, should take action on. Uh, Although, you know, my hopes for us taking action in the next four years uh, are, are not great. But uh, that doesn't mean that our schools are failing. The people who are most informed about how the schools are performing are the people who actually send their kids there 180 days a year. And if we listen to them, we hear the schools are actually doing a pretty decent job. Uh, and so I think it's really important to, to close the perception gap between what people think is going on in the nation's schools and what is actually going on. This is not to say that there aren't bad schools. There are bad schools. There just aren't that many of them. And so if we narrow our focus to really doing what it takes to help those schools that really need help and to support those schools, and then we stop trash talking the rest of the schools, you know, maybe we won't discourage educators so much. And maybe we, we won't scare people away from public schools like we've been doing. I always thought the perception gap was how well I thought my new jeans looked. From the gap in and how well they actually look. That's that's what I. <laughs> nice. I mean, Jack, you bring we've we've actually talked about a number of these issues before. The narrative around schools and the way people even talk about it, right? Like schools are bad or all school. How do we fix schools? As if it's just like some kind of simple thing that can be fixed, which is why you get you know simple responses like oh vouchers will fix schools and they won't, which most data shows. But I would <laughs> I like the idea of collecting different data. Did you walk into your your daughter's elementary school and check to see the number of kilns? I want to see the the Jack Snyder number of kilns for making dinosaurs <laughs> metric be included more. <laughs> yeah, right, right. No, I didn't do that, but you know, I did the first day that I walked into that school, I looked to see where is the student art hanging on the walls? It is all over that school and you get a good sense of you know, the kinds of art projects that students are engaged in and how valued the arts are that that's something that is plastered all over the walls in the school. You know, that people often say, well, if you're going to measure stuff like this, you know, that these data can be gamed too, just like standardized test scores can be gamed. Yeah, you know, you're going to measure three dozen different variables and you're going to have teachers engaged in stuff like creating fake student art for 500 students in the building, you know, multiple assessments a year. This is going to be pretty hard to game. Uh, it's going to be a lot harder to game than narrowing the curriculum and then just teaching test-oriented practices. Hey, that, that's an argument I want to see in our schools, right? You guys have too much art on the walls. You guys are just gaming the system. You guys are too <laughs> that's, creative. That's right. Those... We'll, know, we'll know that we have a good problem when we end up with that discussion. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully we get there. Um, we appreciate you so much talking about this issue because it is such an important issue that we understand the quality of our schools. Where can our listeners find you you and your work online? That's a great question. So me, I'm easily Googled, Jack Schneider. And if you search for Jack Schneider Education or Jack Schneider Holy Cross, and my last name is S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R, uh, I'll be the first bunch of hits on Google. Uh, our consortium is M-C-I-E-A.com 
Massachusettsconsortium.org. That's the Massachusetts Consortium for Innovative Education Assessment. And then finally, I'll put in a plug for my podcast, uh, which is uh, co-hosted by Jennifer Berkshire, a journalist who I think is totally worth listening to. And then I'm along for the ride on the podcast. And our podcast is called Have You Heard? Have You Heard? And you're on Twitter as well with Have You Heard? I'm on Twitter as well. She tweets as B is for Berkshire, uh, which is actually spelled Berkshire. So don't uh, be confused. And then I think Have You Heard may have a handle. And I am Edu Historian, E-D-U underscore historian on Twitter. Excellent. We'll definitely direct people towards all those resources. You definitely need to check out Jack's uh, podcast and look at some of his research and work that he's doing. And yeah, we're looking forward to continuing the discussion online and, and in other spaces. Great. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. We're all about sharing the learning at the Visions of Education podcast. Tweet us at Visions of Ed if you're doing something creative in education. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or really anywhere. <laughs> and if you, buy, if you write us a five-star review, then we will read it on the air. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off. <laughs>